Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. We are thick in one of our busiest weeks yet. On this day in 1940 was one of the most important amphibious operations and evacuations in history, when the British Expeditionary Force and other Allied troops were evacuated from the beaches of Dunkirk to save them from the rapidly approaching German forces who had just launched their lightning invasion of northern Europe. It is an extraordinary story and there is no better man to tell it than Dr Phil Weir, author of Dunkirk and the Little Ships, published by Shire Books. Philip Weir is a historian who specialises in the Royal Navy in the early 20th century. He has written for the Navy Record Society, History Today and Time and has contributed to television and radio programmes including the BBC's Who Do You Think You Are? Above all, however, he is a titan in the world of social media, a man at the centre of a web of naval specialists all over the world. You can, and you certainly should, all follow him on Twitter, at Naval Historian. Let's set the scene from Phil's book. During 1940, the German army swept with devastating speed across the Low Countries and into northern France and drove Allied forces back into a small pocket around Dunkirk. Without a swift withdrawal across the English Channel, the latter faced certain death or capture. The evacuation plan, Operation Dynamo, initially calculated that 45,000 men might be rescued. But between the 26th of May and the 4th of June, 338,226 men were in fact brought back to England. Naval historian Phil Weir shows how this was made possible by a vast armada of disparate vessels, including destroyers, minesweepers, fishing vessels, and most famously of all, the privately owned little ships. He explores the vessels' various roles within the evacuation and their subsequent fates, including preservation and participation in commemorative return runs to the port, which now take place every five years. Well, to tell you more, here is the man himself, Dr Phil Weir. Right, Phil, Dunkirk, um, May 1940. Indeed. Set the scene, what was happening? Well, at that point, really, um, Britain, the Allies, are in something of a political crisis. Um, you've had 
The French Prime Minister has had to resign, been replaced um, due to uh, basically problems over the, uh, the Soviet invasion of uh, Finland, which the uh, Allies, the British and the French, didn't really intervene to, to assist the, the Finns. Um, and then you've also got the invasion of Norway in April, which the Allied counter to which doesn't go terribly well, which causes a political crisis in Britain. And by the 10th of May, you've got a problem whereby the Prime Minister of Britain, Neville Chamberlain, is facing a vote of no confidence, famously, and uh, he is forced to step down. However, it is at that very moment that, of course, um, Adolf Hitler chooses to invade France. Right. And, and, and what's the kind of the immediate response to that in the UK? There are various responses, really. It's, um, you've got Churchill as the new uh, prime minister, but a lot of things spring into action pretty immediately. Um, for the British forces on the continent, they are under the command of the French General Maurice Gamelin, <clears throat> so under French command, and immediately the Germans cross the border, the Belgians um, call for, for assistance from the Allies, and British and French forces move up into, uh, into Belgium. They also move across into the Netherlands, which has also been invaded, and there's interesting little naval manoeuvre in there, in fact, where uh, you have a force at sea of uh, the cruiser HMS Birmingham and a, um, an escort of destroyers on the lookout, uh, generally for, for German ships, predominantly for mine layers, um, and they are immediately ordered to the Dutch coast to go and sweep down there, because, of course, the fear is, much as had happened with the invasions of Denmark and, uh, and Norway, that the Germans would also put in a, um, an amphibious effort and go round down the coast, uh, potentially into the Netherlands. Germans actually don't, but the, the British send down a, uh, this force of cruisers and destroyers to sweep up and destroy anything that's in sight, um, and thereafter follow up with minesweepers um, in order to, to keep the, uh, the Dutch ports clear, because, of course, the Netherlands have got some fantastic ports, and the French uh, are essentially determined to use them, and they use them to send chunks of the, uh, the 7th Army um, across to the port of Lisingen. Um, so essentially they do what the Germans, uh, they feared the Germans would do, but obviously the Germans couldn't. Um, and if they tried, they'd probably have been sunk. But <laughs> <laughs> What were the naval powers at the time in that area then? So it wasn't just the British and the Germans, was it? Um, it's, I mean, obviously, it's, uh, it's predominantly the, the British and the Germans in, in that area, but uh, obviously the French have got a, a quite considerable navy of their own as well. Um, although largely because the, the situation in the Mediterranean is deteriorating with Italy, uh, much of the French navy is now has been shifted towards um, towards the, the Mediterranean and the, the British have actually had to recreate their own Mediterranean mm. fleet as well because outbreak of war in September 39 the, the Mediterranean fleet is not quite disbanded but very much truncated down to really a cruiser force as the, the battleships and the aircraft carriers are brought back to the home fleet um, but that has to reverse itself as, uh, as sort of April and May continue but uh, yes, the, the French do have a, a notable naval force of their own, um, 
There's a couple of old battleships, um, First World Wars, destroyers, a couple of cruisers in the Atlantic fleet. So there is a a substantial naval force, and it's it's basically the Allies um, really have uh, naval dominance down that coast. What about the Dutch? Is there a Dutch... They're Dutch ships. Absolutely, yes. Of course, the the, the Dutch have very... Uh, it's, it's a small but very highly competent navy. Um, and it is it is of the Dutch armed forces probably in the best shape. I mean, obviously, throughout the interwar period, everyone's kind of suffered a bit from um, defence cuts and, uh, and um, retrenchment after the First World War. And the Dutch are no different. Um, but... 1930s, they all see potentially war coming and, uh, and uh, money starts to be spent. But the, the Dutch Navy, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's highly competent, it's small. Um, a lot of it is actually based out in the Netherlands, the East Indies, but they've got a, a number of pretty advanced ships that are predominantly still under construction, um, actually in, in the Netherlands. And... Beyond that, and when the uh, the Germans invade, then certain arrangements that have already been made, and have to bear in mind that this is an arrangement that was also made with the Polish Navy um, in 1939, they start to withdraw back to Britain to, to fight on alongside uh, Britain to essentially keep their navy safe and keep the navy fighting because the, the fear is they'll they'll get potentially caught in port and just sunk. Um, <clears throat> now, the most modern destroyer they've got, the Van Halen, and I apologise for any <laughs> very convincing <laughs> for, for Dutch uh, <laughs> any Dutch listeners for my uh, yeah. for my Dutch pronunciation. Uh, the Van Halen um, is sent in to uh, to try and um, bombard German forces ashore, um, but is unfortunately sunk in the process. Um, much of the rest of the, the navy. Led by a, an older cruiser, but most of the, the sort of part-built ships, and not all of them are, are completed by any stretch of the imagination, pull out really from the 11th of May onwards and, uh, and go across to the, the Medway, where they are taken in by the British and uh, in many cases completed, and, uh, and their sort of technology and so forth handed over to, <laughs> um, incorporated into uh, into the Allies. So... There's yeah, a there are different, you know, naval forces around. It's absolutely. not just the, not just the UK. The, the, the Belgium, have, Belgium's got a got a fairly small coastal force. Um, so the the Dutch are the the primary ones, the French as well. But yes, yeah, it's, it's also the uh, and, and obviously the Royal Navy. So yeah, there's, there yeah. are a number of naval forces that obviously the the Dutch had been neutral up to this point, and all of a sudden on the tenth they are immediately incorporated into the and there's, and there's yeah. plenty of fishing boats as well. I just want to give the impression that there's um, that, you know there's quite a lot of traffic in the channel. there are a lot of boats around aren't there yeah yeah and there's quite a bit of traffic um, and it's not just uh, fishing boats I mean, obviously you find with a lot of the uh, or at least a significant chunk of the the British um, fishing fleet as um, as in the First World War, a lot of them have been taken up into uh, to naval services, anti-submarine trawlers, minesweepers, yep. and so forth. Um, similarly, the French have, uh, and the Belgians and the Dutch have, have taken up a number of theirs as well. So you've got the fishing fleets, you've got um, a lot of cross-channel traffic. Um, 
Notably, to to even support uh, the the British Expeditionary Force, the the British Army ashore, um, you've you know, they they are transported across initially from uh, from the sort of first couple of days of the war. Um, so this is just, as soon in, as as the Germans have invaded, um, the British Expeditionary Force is then sent across. Uh, um, as soon as war was declared in in nineteen thirty nine, the the uh, British Expeditionary Force is sent across. This is. Uh, really remarkably quickly after uh, after the invasion of Poland, within a couple of days, they start sending uh, men across. And uh, I mean, the initial arrivals are actually uh, the RAF. Um, and that's I think they actually even arrived the day before war is declared, okay. in, in order to try and preempt any uh, any surprise attack by the Germans. But the, the uh, crucial point is that they've been dropped off in oh, France, yeah. and then the boats, the ships that dropped them off, have then returned to the UK. So there, there isn't, yeah. the, you know, the, the 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 shipping which took that army there is not sitting around waiting to pick them up again. Um, there is a the degree of yes and no oh, with right, that, okay. in fact, um, because. There is obviously sort of unit rotation to go through, so there is always some traffic going on, um, and there are you know, there is a need to to support the army with munitions, with other supplies, and so forth from Britain. So, actually, under the Dover command, um, under Vice Admiral Ramsey, um, whose headquarters at Dover Castle, um, there are still a number of ships actually sat in there just. Going uh, back and forth across Channel to to support the uh, the British Expeditionary Force. So it's like a kind of umbilical cord. Yeah, yeah. Um, most of that in, it tends, in fact, to go less directly across the Channel. Although there is some um, really sort of the Dover to Dunkirk. A lot of it tends to be more slightly further back with the um, um, Portsmouth to Cherbourg, Lave. Um, those sorts of places, because the uh, this was a, a request of the French, because they wanted British supply ports to support the army to be further back, um, predominantly because they were afraid that the Germans would uh, would basically bomb the ports and right. uh, and um, cause problems that way if they were too close to the German border. So the the theory was that if the um, import ports for the, the the expeditionary force were a bit further up the coast in Normandy then Allied air defences would be able to pick them up and uh, pick any raiders up and hopefully less or no damage would be uh, would be caused to the, the supply lines. Um, so, yeah, the, there is still a, a fair bit of traffic going across. The, the army, it's, it's ever-growing. I mean, obviously, the, the first tranche is really sort of only uh, a couple of divisions, I think. Um, by the time you reach... The, uh, the German invasion of France and Belgium in May 1940s up to about 10 divisions. And I mean, there's, um, that's sort of primarily the fighting men. You've got also with that the, uh, the, the rear, rear echelons, the, the supply guys and so forth. And it's, it's sort of heading for, you know, half a million men. Wow, an immense amount of people. And then it, it all goes wrong. Yes, it very, very quickly goes wrong. Um, the French uh, General Gamelin, he's he's got this this grand plan, this grand idea that um, that obviously his forces will steam into Belgium um, and intercept the Germans you know, as they uh, as they come through Belgium, and, uh, and that the war would be fought in uh, in, in Belgium. 
Now, obviously, the, the, the really grand plan, uh, the famous bit, is the Maginot Line, mm-hmm. um, about which many jokes are told, of course, uh, about it being too short and all the rest of it. Most of them are kind of not quite accurate. Well, the specific point is that it yeah. doesn't go to the sea. Yes. Um, the specific, yeah. Um, it doesn't. Um, there are various reasons for that, expense, politics, and a few other bits and pieces. Um, but it basically actually does what they intend it to do. And what they intend it to do is ensure that there is no direct invasion of France, i.e. that they will fight the next war not on French soil, but on Belgian soil. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's all about, um, if, you're, if you're not going to... And build the wall right the way up to, to the sea um, on the French border, then it's all about effectively kind of using Belgium as your buffer zone. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the plan. What it relies upon, of course, if they're not going to go through the, uh, the uh, Maginot line, which they don't, um, you've got to guess which route through Belgium they take. And obviously there's this marvellous sort of flat plain right the way through the, the uh, centre of Belgium, the, the, the Jean Blot Gap, um, which is a traditional invasion route. In fact, <clears throat> um, entertainingly, um, when war is declared in, in September 39, um, there is a certain amount of friction, shall we say, between uh, the, the French and neutral Belgium because um, you know, the French sit there and say, well, you know, in order to, to really run a successful counter-invasion of France to, to help our Polish allies, we need to get through Belgium. We've got to go through the, the Jean Blot Gap. And the Belgians say, no. <laughs> um, and therefore, the, there is there's only a sort of minor invasion between the, the two defensive lines, between the Maginot Line and his German opposite number, which doesn't last terribly long and doesn't go terribly far. Um, so this is, this is the chosen route. This is the one that... Uh, the, Gamelin would have used himself if he'd been allowed, and this is the one that uh, that he thinks that uh, the, the Germans are going to use when they come through. And indeed, actually, actually, it really is. This this is the German plan, right up until the point where a couple of German majors out and about on a little jolly in an aircraft crash land in the middle of Belgium with a set full set of plans. <laughs> Rather forcing a fairly dramatic rethink to uh, to the uh, the proposals put forward by uh, by von Manstein to essentially go through the Ardennes um, as they famously end up doing. Now, as with all of these things, there is this sort of grand precedent, and uh, the, the the French have actually exercised it. Um, one of their generals, uh, André Gaston Presselat. Um, in 1936 and 1938, I think it is. Um, he um, it, he's he's in charge of the the attacking force in this this big exercise that they run, and uh, he figures out that if you go through the Ardennes, you can probably get an armoured force to the uh, to the Meuse River and Sedan in about 60 hours. Hmm. Um, so they they know it's possible. I mean, it's, it, you find much the same thing with Pearl Harbor and all the rest of it. They they know it's possible. They just don't think that's what's going to happen yeah. because you know, various factors. They uh, you know, this is the way they think it's it's going to be going. It's obviously going to be easier. The terrain is, is it's obvious. Um, they have slightly paradoxically 
um, Enigma reports from uh, from Bletchley Park, um, helped by the French and uh, and the Poles, um, telling them the the Luftwaffe amassing predominantly for a, a thrust into the Netherlands and and central Belgium, which is what the Luftwaffe is mainly assigned to, but it doesn't tell them about the army, which has got this armoured thrust prepped through the uh, through the Ardennes. And this is what happens, and I mean, it's it's tricky terrain. It's forests, it's rivers. It's but they they made they manage to do it. They do it, yeah. And, and they, that means the the British army has to has to turn tail. Yeah, and they 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 punch through in a few days. Really, is about the thirteenth, fourteenth. They cross the, the Meuse at Sedan, um, and it's then sort of free and clear out to to just round past Calais on their their big left hook round to the sea. And yes, lo and behold, the, uh, the northern Allied armies, the, the cream of the Allied armies indeed, um, are trapped in a pocket up against the sea by the German army. So, I mean, in terms of getting them out, what, what, is there a port nearby? Are there, uh, I mean, what, what are the options of actually getting these troops off? Well, it's a tricky one. Um, obviously, ports are absolutely crucial. Um, and really, left within the pocket, you've got sort of three or four. It's predominantly um, Calais, Boulogne, Ostend in Belgium, or Dunkirk. And that's, that's really your, your key options. Um, now, ports are obviously absolutely vital... By the time the um, Germans break through by the, the 21st um, and get through to the sea, it's fairly obvious, well, it, it's entirely obvious to the, the British that this is a problem. Um, the, the British general, um, the Victoria Cross winning hero of the First World War, Lord Gort, um, has kind of seen what's happening and thinks we are probably going to have to get ourselves out of here. And he discusses this with, with London on, I think it's the 19th, and they, they put um, Vice Admiral Ramsey, the, uh, the, the Admiral in charge at Dover, in command of any possible evacuations. And they immediately sort of start looking at the ports. So they want a port with deep water so they can get a big ship in, which can get lots of men on board. That's yeah. the principle, isn't it? Absolute bottom line. It's, it's simple, you know... Maritime Logistics 101, as the Americans would uh, would put it, it's easiest to get large numbers of people straight onto a ship if you've got a nice sort of deep water port that you can tie up against a big jetty and they can just walk straight on. Yeah, it's that easy. Um, if you've got to do anything else, uh, like take people off of beaches, then it's obviously a large ship. Can't get in close. It's going to have to sit off the uh, off the beaches some distance if it's you know shallow gradient beach and so forth. Um, and you're just going to have to have little ships ferrying people to and from, and it takes absolute hours. Um, so it's far far more efficient for it to to run through a port. And this is the the key bit that certainly the Admiralty are looking at. Although the army. Um, Lord Gort stuck at Dunkirk is, is sort of less looking at this and when he sort of makes his move back to Dunkirk um, he they're primarily looking at beaches and there's, there's an interesting 
fun little bit that I uh, sadly never quite got to put in the book where um, he's got this uh, this fascinating character with him, um, a Royal Marine, a uh, young captain by the name of Jim Moulton. And uh, he's, he's actually, I think, the only Royal Marine to be at uh, both Dunkirk and D-Day. Um, absolutely incredible career. He you know, starts out as a gunner on HMS Rodney. Um, then... She's going to um, something like anti-aircraft gunnery uh, ashore briefly before becoming an aviator um, out in the Far East uh, in, uh, in the fleet air on a board. I think it's HMS Eagle for five years. Um, then goes to Staff College just before the outbreak of war and um, then gets assigned across to General Staff on Lord Gault HQ. Um, so he's, he's had a, this incredibly varied career already, and he's you know, he's been sort of sat in in Gort's staff because it's, I think he's about the only guy wearing green with aviators' wings. They they <laughs> assign him predominantly to, to talk to the um, British and French air forces, and then when they're retreating on to the beaches, it's sort of oh, you're a marine, you know about boats, don't you? <laughs> you you can go down to Dunkirk and sort, 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 out. sort things out. Yeah. So yeah, Jim, Jim Moulton go, goes down and he sort of sees um sees there's a bit of chaos going on on the beach. So the, um, the British have retreated to sort of core what they call core embarkation areas just off the beaches, um, and the Navy haven't really got a clue as to where they are, so you've got ships arriving that aren't quite sure where they are, and so Morton goes out and uh, um, he, he talks to the uh, captain of one of these ships and discovers that there's a distinct lack of communication, and he he, he uh, gets permission to, to head across and uh, brief Admiral Ramsey at, uh, at, Dunkirk, at, at Dover. Sorry. So I mean, that's that's one part of it. Um, but I mean, the, the other part of it from the naval side, of course, is that uh, the uh, you actually they actually start fairly early, um, as as I mentioned. Um, Admiral Ramsey's already got a certain amount of, of um, ships under his command already to you know, that have been supplying um, the BEF and, and putting troops over there and putting supplies over there and so forth, and. Things have started to accumulate really and start heading towards Dover um, from sort of 18th, 19th when they start figuring out we might need to do this. So, what's wrong with the ports? Why can't so, they send the big ships to the big deep ports? Well, here's the, uh, here's the fun bit. Um, initially, they actually do start sending stuff out of, of Dunkirk itself. Um, in fact, the, the French start an evacuation themselves on the 20th they start getting what's known as useless mouths out there um, this is all run by incidentally um, Admiral Ramsey's somewhat less known French counterpart Admiral Abrial who's the Amiral uh, um, Nord uh, effectively the, the commander of naval forces north for, for the French Navy based at, uh, at Dunkirk so from the 20th they're already starting to ship people out in, in large ships um, Incidentally, just to sort of go back on the, the, the Dutch, there's a slightly tragic tale that uh, they, they've got the remnants of the Dutch army there. They put aboard uh, one of the first ships out on the 20th and, uh, and the, the Luftwaffe spot this, uh, this convoy leaving. 
and they bomb the, the ship carrying the Dutch, which then uh, has to be run ashore off Calais, and, uh, and the, um, the, the, the poor Dutch soldiers, having escaped once, now find themselves um, popped straight into to German captivity again hmm. within about sort of, 24, 48 hours. Um, it's amazing how close the Germans are, but obviously oh, there's, yeah. there's a problem with the ports, yeah. which is why they have to take it to the beaches. Um, which is, I mean, this is, yeah, uh, the key point, of course. The German army has arrived on the, the coast um, a little bit west of Calais, and they're starting to move in. Um, so you've got the ports of, of Calais uh, and Boulogne fairly rapidly start coming under attack. Now, in order to try to, to keep stuff running there, the, the British put across... Um, some forces uh, spearheaded by Royal Marines, but with a with army backup from uh, from a couple of army brigades um, into into each of those ports, and they are there with the French to try and uh, hold things up, and they sort of start you know, the, the Germans really start hitting Boulogne and really start trying to roll the roll Boulogne up, and. The British arrive and it's really nasty within sort of a couple of days. They are forced to, to retreat. They, they sort of send out the Navy saying, come and get us. So they, you know, this is another evacuation before. And they, I mean, in reality, this is a whole series of, of evacuations and, uh, and so forth that that really are really sort of make up the Dunkirk story. Yeah, that's the point is we we know about Dunkirk, but there's stuff going on before, there's, and there's a great deal of stuff goes on afterwards. Absolutely, well, yeah. yeah. So you've got um, you know, the uh, the force in Boulogne requests permission to to evacuate. They get permission to evacuate and and get hauled out. Uh, the force in Calais fairly shortly afterwards find themselves in the same boat um, and it's it starts to get a bit bloody and they they you know, send a send the message home you know, start preparing to to evacuate and then unfortunately um, for the the brigade that's in there a destroyer arrives HMS Wolfhound I believe it is um, carrying uh, Vice Admiral Sir James Somerville um, who has of acting as, as Vice Admiral Ramsey's deputy, he's, he's been sent down from the Admiralty to sort of reinforce the command setup at Dover, and he carries hand delivered this message to the, uh, the brigadier, and basically, for the sake of Allied unity, the French have uh, have said no withdrawals. For the sake of Allied unity, you will stay, mm. and the Navy send what they can. I mean, they they. Put a couple of cruisers out there with their big six-inch guns to to just keep hammering away at the Germans, um, along with a um, flotilla of destroyers, and one of which I think is lost in the process. Um, and they they give them what support they can. The RAF, of course, uh, the flying air cover, flying bombing raids, but all to no avail. And really, on the twenty-sixth, Calais collapses. Um, at that point, also. Uh, the Belgians are looking shaky and really, I think it's around 26, 27, they send a message to um, to, to headquarters in, uh, in in France saying, look, we're, we are going to have to surrender. So realistically, Ostend is kind of out now. 
and besides which the the British army has largely withdrawn on Dunkirk anyway as it, as its nearest port so we're down to Dunkirk Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Look now. The, the rest of the ports are, are being sort of collapsed in on each other. And it's now down to this one port that is obviously now the key target for the Luftwaffe as well. Sure, yeah. So, um, yeah, the, it's, the grand plan would be to, um, if they've been able to keep sort of Calais and Boulogne open, they could potentially have got reinforcements in, they could have got supplies in, they could have you know, maybe sorted out a breakout or whatever, but... they they couldn't hold those ports and it's it's now down to Dunkirk and it's it's time to go and really um it's it's a couple of hours after Calais falls um that the order is given uh to commence operation dynamo right which is the big evacuation um and, and how many men are we talking well it's a lot because i mean really The early efforts have really only pulled out I think it was about 20 or 30,000 of the the rear echelon troops the, the supply troops and so forth um rather more of the the, the French have gone but yeah it's, it's really about some sort of 20 30,000 have come out so far and you've got really about 200 or so thousand British troops sat in there with another sort of 150 200,000 French So you are talking a lot of men. Yeah. So there's a serious problem which is when the call goes out to get every bit of shipping that the British can get hold of and to get them out there. So these, you know, let's talk about the little ships. Yeah. And how they actually fitted into the whole um the whole process. What was the intention to bring troops off the beaches to larger ships at anchor? um or were they actually carrying troops directly across the channel um well the little ships story is, is fairly fascinating it, it's a, a complete coincidence um what they'd done 
around about the 14th. So this, this is around about the time that the Germans are making their big breakthrough at Sedan. Um, the Admiralty puts out a call to particularly people in the southeast to say, you know, if you've got a boat longer than it's about 30 feet, could you come and register it with the, with the Admiralty, please? Um, which... This has actually happened before. So this, this has actually happened, yeah. yeah. Um, and this this is not for uh, any evacuation. They, they don't have any evacuation in mind, and as it, as you said earlier. There's there's no grand plan in <laughs> no. no grand scheme in place to to pull the, the British expeditionary force out. They they just don't foresee this. What it's for is is really to to sort of have this list of little boats to to just pot around ports to take men off of ships for leave and liberty and um, do little anti-saboteur patrols up and down harbours and so forth just to um, put a couple of marines on a boat to take pot shots at anybody Mm. anybody randomly out fishing in the wrong place or whatever but it gives them a list doesn't it but they've got this list now yeah and uh, all of a sudden um, I'd love to have been there in that moment when someone went hang on yeah (laughs) (laughs) I can put the two and two together here yeah Uh, and and that this is what happens the the Vice Admiral commanding the small boats pool, um, a little known character, he, he is the guy who, who does this. I mean, he, he gets, you know, rightly, a considerable amount of credit for um, you know, forcing bringing this together. And obviously, what they do when they order the evacuation, they sort of sit there and go, OK, um, here's our list, let's go and get them. And I mean, the, Yes, it's not just the the civilian little ships that they've got on the register. I mean, literally, they're they're just going through everything in any sort of southern port, naval base, the whole nine yards. Yeah. So I mean, and they physically they go and get them rather than expecting them to be delivered, don't they? Oh God, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's uh, there's marvelous sort of famous case that uh, um, one poor chap who um, spots his boat. <laughs> disappearing off up the Thames. Thinks he's being nicked. <laughs> yeah, he chases it up as far as something like Teddington, Teddington Lock, um, and sort of. I th- I'm not sure whether he uh, he came across naval um, naval personnel or, or Ministry of Shipping guys, but it, it sort of. Yes, sir. This is entirely legal. We are requis- requisitioning this boat. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> and, and off uh, off they go, and uh, yeah, they, it's. I mean, they, they go and as I say they they nick stuff from um, warships uh, that are in refit. Their lifeboats go. The admiral's you know, vice admiral Ramsey's barge, his personal barge for Dover, <laughs> gets taken across. Um, bunch of uh, of barges or uh, scoots um, that have literally just evacuated out of the Netherlands a few days before. Okay, right. They, these are all sort of sat sat in southern ports around. Pool, I think it is, and somewhere around there. And there are a lot of sort of pleasure ships and steamers, and you know the things of just people poodle around in the south coast enjoying the British seaside. No, it's it's absolutely blasted everything. Um, there's a uh, lifeboats, um, there's a fireboat, tugs, fishing uh, boats, and trawlers make up a, a huge sort of physical number of the uh, the, the ships, uh, little ships that go out there. Um, 
What else have you got? Paddle um, steam, I think. It's a paddle steam, isn't it? Oh, oh God, yeah. There, there's, uh, I mean, the, the paddle steam is a, a wonderful um, little story. I mean, you get some of them are still in, in civilian garb, but a lot of them have actually already been taken up um, on the outbreak of war. Much like some of the trawlers, they're, they're sort of taken up as minesweepers because they're marvellously manoeuvrable. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're wonderfully manoeuvrable at, yeah. at slow speed, so they can just sort of inch their way into into spin around in circles yeah <laughs> and try to avoid getting, <laughs> getting using their paddles to hit the, hit the mines yeah <laughs> anyway so we've got we've got this huge variety this kind of an eclectic fleet which is the likes of which has never been gathered before yes and um off they go um largely it's it's in starts off really in dribs and drabs because it I and mean, obviously what admiral ramsey's got with him immediately on the 26th is Predominantly a combination of about 30 or so destroyers and a similar number of um, what they call personnel ships, which are essentially the cross-channel passenger ferries and so forth that delivered, and most of these are literally the same ships that delivered the, the British Expeditionary yeah. Force across in, uh, in 1939. Um, and that's really your sort of first wave. Um, I think the first ship across there is... Um, well, certainly the first ship leaving on the 26th, and this is actually before the order goes out, is a, a Manx packet. Um, gets uh, <clears throat> gets sent across the King Ori, um, which goes in. Um, I think they arrive just after the order's been given and um, haul some people off. And, yeah, it's 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 Manx packets and, uh, and these, these cross-channel ferries and, uh, you know, ferries to Holland and all this sort of stuff that... That's really your sort of first wave starting to to go and get people um, initially sort of predominantly trying to get them from the beaches because, as I mentioned earlier, the the initial communication isn't quite there. So the army's not quite where the the Navy expects them to be and and so on and so forth. So um, as well as the uh, the Marine I mentioned, Captain Moulton um, coming across, you get... um, you know, the, the the British send across uh, the the Navy sends across uh, effectively so a team to to start trying to organise stuff at uh, the the Dunkirk end, and slowly things start to to put together, um, and uh, and they start getting people out, and uh, I mean the key to a lot of this is uh, from the, the naval side is is Captain Bill Tennant who is. In essence, certainly initially, um, Vice Admiral Ramsey's sort of representative in Dunkirk, the senior naval officer there, um, and he, he sort of arrives and uh, and starts coordinating things, and he he probably embeds himself um, with the the French headquarters at, uh, at Bastion Thirty Two in Dunkirk with Admiral Abriel, and they they start. Start getting that line of communication going. Start getting people into the right place. Um, but I mean, the, the tricky bit initially is that a lot of Dunkirk, because it's been a massive target for the Luftwaffe for the last few days, is not in great shape. I mean, ports are tricky to knock out, but when you start having sunk ships in the way and so forth, it, it starts to get a bit messy. Um, and obviously, the the French are, are kind of running to a degree, their own evacuation at the same time as well. So a lot of the port isn't terribly usable. Right. Um, 
And this is one of the key things that uh, that they they are concerned with. So they're, they're sort of sat there wondering, really, are we going to be able to do this? I mean, the initial projections um, based on things like the weather and um, how long they expected Dunkirk to hold out, particularly in light of what had happened at Calais and Boulogne, they reckon they've probably got about three days. And if they're lucky, you know, well, if they're, they're fairly unlucky, then they're probably only going to get about 35,000, 40,000 out. Yeah. It's, this does not look good, particularly when you've got nearly 200,000 in there. Um, but Molly, shortly after arrival, Captain Tennant has this bright idea. He's sat out there in, in the harbour in this long breakwater um, called the Mole. In fact, well, there's two of them, in fact. There's a, an east and a west mole. And uh, he sort of spots it. It's, it's not not structurally that sound-looking. It's, it's, you know, it's a wooden piling with a bit of concrete in it. Um, and obviously, you know, you stick a, a sort of thousand-ton ship or again, up against something like that, and it's... Is it going to take it? Is, is it just <laughs> going to collapse? But they, he sits there and thinks, right... We've got to try this. Um, so he, he orders up this uh, this uh, cross-channel steamer, the, the Queen of the Channel, to come in alongside, uh, tie up, and, and see if they could load off of uh, off of this, this mole. And up comes this, this ship and ties up. Men go on. And lo and behold, yep. It holds. It it survives. It doesn't collapse and yeah. uh, crumble to dust. And all of a sudden, they've kind of they've got it. This is this is kind of the key that cracks it. This is the way they're going to be able to get ships in and tied up to something such that men can just you can get hundreds get off, the time, hundreds off immediately. And, and this is what they they start doing. And very rapidly, starts ordering um, you know, the ships to come in. And tie up, and obviously they they send messengers out to the the men behind the beaches to to start hauling into Dunkirk as fast as they can. And really, what what you're after there is obviously it's, it's almost a this sort of um, you know, railway line principle of something turns up, you fill it, goes. Turn turns up, fill it, goes, and obviously at the other end arrives, unloads. Turns around, around yeah. turns, turns around, refuels, rearms, heads back, and all to all to as close as you can get. Which, let's be honest here, it's not going to be terribly close when uh, when you're in a combat situation. Everyone's getting bombed and all the rest of it. Sure, um, but it's as close as you can get to almost a timetable. And the the guy responsible for that is is one of uh, one of Admiral Ramsey's staff, uh, Captain Michael Denny, and I mean. It, they really do phenomenally well with it. It's, it's quite incredible. Yeah, working like a, as you say, a timetable. It's a really good way of thinking about it. So that's what's happening. They're 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 removing people in their hundreds from ships from this 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 sketchy mole, um, and then are those ships being attacked by German torpedo boats or U boats or aircraft. What what's going on? Oh yeah, I mean it's it's a dangerous place to be as the Channel. Um, I mean the. Probably the, the key dangers actually initially is, is minefields, and goodly chunk of those are, are in fact the Allied minefields right, okay. that uh, you know, chunks of which they have to start clearing before they um, you know, before they they can get 
uh, at least one of the, the key routes open. So they've got three key routes to go down. Um, one of them out to the, the east and down um, one sort of fairly straightish through the centre and then one out to the west and round um, to get round, obviously, the minefields and, uh, and sandbanks and so forth. So... So they clear the minefields, but then they've got the, the Germans to deal with then, because the Germans certainly know what's going on. Oh God, yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> the, the the Germans are. I mean, famously, of course, the German army has been ordered to halt for for a couple of days, um, briefly. And uh, Goering, head of the Luftwaffe, says, "Ah, oh, it's fine. I'll, I'll deal with it. I'll deal with it. Not a problem." And uh, yeah, they, the Luftwaffe you know, heads in and starts bombing the hell out of the place, um, you know, bombing troops ashore, trying to bomb ships um, at sea. Not, in many respects, terribly successfully with the, the latter, um, it must be said. The, the Luftwaffe was not really set up as an anti-shipping force. Um, they're not terribly good at it at this point. Um, We've got to remember it's still early on in the war, and and also bombing ships is a remarkably difficult thing. And I think the point there's a big, you know, there's there's a big gap here. Where's where's the German navy? Yeah, um, there's the interesting bit. Of course, Um, the German navy is there, but only in a comparatively small way. Um, The key thing that the Germans are deploying are these little motor torpedo boats known as as Schnellboots or S-Boots in in German or E-Boats to the British for enemy boats. Um, And these are nasty, deadly little things with uh, with, large cannon on and a couple of 21-inch torpedoes that can obviously sink a major warship if they uh, they strike on they're, they're small they're fast I mean, 40 odd knots yeah. but there are no German warships in. yeah um, and it, the the boats are key because the rest of the fleet such as it is has largely been committed to the invasion of Norway yeah um, this is where the big ships are right throughout the um, the whole of the the Dunkirk evacuation. I mean, the, the Norway invasion has taken a lot. It's, it is it's really the, the German Navy's operation. Um, the, the entire fleet had been um, detailed to the invasion to, um, to actually execute it. You've got a lot of their um, sea lift, their, their transport shipping is committed to it. Um, they even have to take troops in on on um, cruisers and so forth just to you know, unload them uh, on key sides in Norway, um, and it's it's where they suffer an awful lot of losses. I mean, they, um, their destroyer fleet was never the German fleet as a whole was never that big. No. So at, at this point, it's literally um, a couple of battleships, um, half a dozen, maybe eight cruisers, twenty destroyers. Now, of those 20 destroyers, 10 of those are destroyed um, in the, the battles of Narvik, particularly. Um, they also lose a couple of cruisers. I mean, the British submarines under, under Vice Admiral Sir Max Horton um, wreak considerable havoc. Uh, the pocket battleship Lutzel uh, gets struck by a torpedo partway through the you know, heading back from Norway. And... Uh, 
her stern just falls off. It's mm. um, fairly shocking. Anyway, the Germans are not there. The, yeah, the, the Germans this, are not, uh, apart the, from the, the e-boats. Yeah, the, the Germans are predominantly... Uh, the, the German Navy is predominantly dealing with Norway. Yeah, OK. Um, and that, that's where the, the two battleships head just after the, uh, the uh, Dunkirk evacuation is, uh, is completed. But, yeah, the, their main... Effort really is um, is the boats, and done to a degree. Um, I, I already mentioned the the minefields. You've also got the RAF, of course, yep. that are there potentially to cause problems. You've also got um, British motor torpedo boats as yep. well. If you if you're sending big ships in there, it's not really a healthy place to be anyway. Yep. So it, it's really kind of a battle suited to these smaller coastal forces, and this is what. They engage, and these things are, are, are pretty deadly. I mean, there's um, was it the uh, 29th is is a, is a particularly nasty day where you you get uh, um, I think uh, U-boats and E-boats attacking all of the, um, all in one area, and you get one destroyer that um, takes a, a torpedo, sinks, um, rescue ships turn up, um, pick up various bit um, various survivors. One of the, the rescuing destroyers gets hit by another torpedo. Um, this uh, first one was from an e-boat. The second one is is, um, is from a U-boat, and there there ends up all sorts of mess. And the the, the Royal Navy are really you know, getting quite concerned. The the ships there, and they they end up with a rather unpleasant friendly fire incident in the middle of all of this because it, it's just so... It's it's dark. It's This is the middle of the night. They've lost um, one destroyer, one other destroyer's in, in a bad way, and it's 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 a mess. And, yeah, it's it's a really quite dangerous place to be. Yeah. It's really important to remember just, just how uncertain it all was. It's, it's one of these these campaigns where we know we know what happened, yeah. you know, but um, to put yourself in the middle of it. So you've got the big ships working off the mole, and then how do the little ships fit into this? Well, um, as we mentioned earlier, the little ships are really there to ferry people to the bigger ships um, from the beaches because really the... There is an uncertainty with the mole. It's you know it may get bombed at some point. You, you get concerns about it being closed. You get people just not really able to to shift in. Space concerns, all the rest of it. So you get a, a number of people being brought off of the beaches, and this is what the little ships are there for. They're they're sort of towed out. They are crewed by naval crews from predominantly from the Chatham barracks, sent across. Um, you do get the old civilian crewing their own ship, of course, uh, and they they're sent across, and they are there to ferry people out to the bigger ships, and um, the bigger ships then then take them back across. Yeah, and once the, all of the, the the people are off Dunkirk, then there's another operation that carries on after that because there are more French soldiers that need to be taken off. It kind of goes on and on, doesn't it? Oh God, yeah. I mean, they, you have to bear in mind that um, once Dunkirk is is completed, there's still something like two hundred thousand British forces still in uh, in France. Plus, of course, uh, there's the French armies, the Polish armies as well, um, and they they're all sort of sat in there. And as the German forces suddenly swing west again and start moving back up the coast to, to invade the rest of France. You suddenly start seeing um, what is you know, Operation Cycle and Aerial. 
which are the, the two big evacuations uh, after Dunkirk. And these essentially start just moving up the coast um, as it uh, Lavre and uh, Cherbourg are the yeah. two big ones. Uh, as so part basically of moving west. Cycle. Yeah. yeah, and as you move out, that's, that's all done under Admiral Sir William James out of Portsmouth. Um, as it moves into the, the far west, um, comes under the Plymouth Command, Admiral, uh, Admiral Sir Martin Dunbar Naismith, VC, a legendary submariner of the First World War. And yeah, they, they have to basically drag the rest of the, the British Army out of there. And I mean, you also have to bear in mind that even with Dunkirk over, uh, Churchill promises additional troops and a couple of divisions actually start making, it, making their way across. Um, you, you get a, these two divisions arriving um, under the command of uh, Lieutenant General Sir Alan Brooke, uh, who turns up at uh, French headquarters and uh, you know, within a day or so and realises that this is it, this is over, we're done, and has to get on the phone and have an absolute blazing round with Churchill. And Churchill sat there saying, no, 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 you've, you've got to stay, you've got to stay. And Brooks saying, no, it, it's over, we've, we've got to get out or we're going to lose the army. And Churchill, in the end, relents, and, uh, and obviously uh, operations, uh, cycle and, and aerial are the, um, are the end response. And it, it all ends... Really, um, in actual fact, just after the the French signed the armistice on uh, on June twenty second, um, and it's like a the, month after, the, you know, oh, God, yeah, yeah, and it it actually ends with the the evacuation of the Polish armies out of uh, Saint Jean de Luz, um, really? down near the Spanish yeah, border, yeah. and that's really the the final evacuation from France, and it, it's there's, there's almost a, a sort of um, Poetic element, I suppose, that the the war really starts with an evacuation of the Polish navy from Poland to Britain, and that first sort of phase really ends with the evacuation of the Polish army to to join the the Polish navy in Britain um, as as they leave France um, at, on uh, just after the the twenty second, around the sort of twenty third, twenty fourth, twenty fifth. Yeah, and it's such a, a magical story, isn't it? Where you've got civilians essentially coming to the help of a professional army do you think that's why it's it's re- retained its its fame and interest i yeah i mean it's 1940s is such a the sort of epochal seminal call it what you want um year of, of incredible events and this is of course one of them so i mean it was almost guaranteed a, a sort of place in the pantheon, but it's it really it's got this great cachet to it, as you say. It's this image, however slightly exaggerated, of as you say, um, you know, civilians coming uh, coming forth. You know, the, the, the great films that you get of uh, um, starting really actually in the war itself with Mrs. Miniver in 1942, where. The, the husband of the, the titular heroine um, gets on his, his little river cruiser and volunteers to go across and, uh, and comes so back. So it was picked up shutter. really early. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. This, this sort of Dunkirk little ship's bit is picked up incredibly early. And obviously you get that through the, the 1958 film with uh, Bernard Lee, later to become M in the Bond films. 
um, and, uh, and Richard Attenborough as again a couple of civilians going across and out as recently as 2007 with the uh, 2017 rather uh, with with Christopher Nolan's recent film um, with uh, with Mark Rylance as uh, uh, as Mr Dawson who's very heavily based on a, an actual character um, it's the the, the fabled um, Charles Lightoller who incredible guy who was a uh, the senior surviving officer on the Titanic and uh, pioneer First World War aviator and so forth. A genuinely incredible guy. <laughs> what an amazing job. Yes. Amazing life. Oh, God, yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, it, it, he's, he's very much based on, uh, based on that. And it, but it is is that great story where it's, it's got that um, you know, romantic amateurism to it and... It's all you know, compressed into this one area, one word, Dunkirk, and you you can just sort of nicely put it all together as this this grand story. Well, Phil, thanks so much for talking to me today. And everyone, if you're listening and you want to find out more, read Dunkirk and the Little Ships by Philip Weir. Uh, it's published by Shy Books, and it is a truly excellent little book. Phil, thanks so much. My pleasure entirely. Thanks, sir. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, do please follow us on social media. The Society for Nautical Research is on Twitter and on Facebook. And the Mariner's Mirror podcast has its own YouTube page, which has got some fabulous new innovative ways of visualising the past and also everything is posted on Instagram but best of all please do take the time to check out the Society for Nautical Research's website at snr.org.uk where you can join please please join us and your subscription fee modest as it is will go towards publishing the most important maritime history and towards preserving our maritime past. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.